0: a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to think another face in the crowd. And we are live. Greetings there, friends and neighbors, and welcome to today's episode of the Survival Podcast. What have I got for you guys today? Wow, I look huge on Twitch. I'm not sure what's going on there. We'll have to see how that works itself out over time. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to... Excuse me. This is distracting. There we go. That looks a little bit better. Anyway, uh, I am running on all the platforms except Twitter today. I did sign up for the new Twitter Blue today, so maybe that'll fix whatever problem I've been having there with live streaming to Twitter. I'm not aware that I'm on any kind of bad boy list with Elon or anything like that. Well, it has absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. I did want to say something about Twitter that I became aware of today. I have it now from multiple sources that Elon will, in fact, be moving Twitter to the great state of Texas. I'm neither pro nor anti that. I would say if I was Elon and I had Twitter as my new thing, And I was a hands-on guy like Elon is, and he is a hands-on corporate leader, whether you like him or not, he is. And he likes to be in a place and be able to see what's going on. And I had SpaceX and Tesla in Texas. Well, I would move Twitter to Texas just for that. And then if you add to it the very unfriendly business atmosphere of California and San Francisco in general, I'd get the hell out of there for that reason, too. So I think this makes sense. And I just read an article that says Elon's having a fire sale. He's selling all kinds of shit. Those really expensive cappuccino makers and shit, he's selling all that shit. He's selling office furniture. He's selling a 40-foot bird statue. If you want the Twitter bird statue, you can buy that from Elon Musk. I'd rather buy Bitcoin with it, but it's up to you. So what are we going to talk about today, folks? We are going to talk about, well... We are continuing our series on uh, the four pillars, as I'm calling them, of homesteading. And we're on pillar three today, and that will be perennials. Now, coming out of the gate, I want to tell you this is nobody's terminology but mine, and it is not something to put into even the Bible of Jack Spirico. It is just the way that I'm explaining the concept of homesteading based on how I was raised. And I was raised by an Italian uh, uh, grandmother who believed in gardening and things like that from very early age, who I spent most of my time with in Florida and uh, a set of Ukrainian grandparents that I spent most of my time with in central Pennsylvania. uh, And both of them had their ways of coming at this. And my, my Italian grandmother was very big on the garden and the cooking as as most Italian grandmothers would be. And my Ukrainian grandparents were big on the garden and the cooking and the perennials and the harvesting and the hunting and the fishing and more gardening and more of a cohesive concept like I'm talking about today. And it is primarily from that vantage point and the vantage point of seeing all of their contemporaries, which was families we were friendly with, my great uncles, uh, my, uh, we called them Chuchis in the world of the Ukrainian uh, community, which are basically like families that are so close that you look at the female matriarchs of the family as ants even though they're not your ants right like when I looked at that whole area not everybody did all four things but all four things were part of the total community and a huge part of it was perennials no one even really used the word perennial much though so what is a perennial an annual annual yearly is a plant that you have to do something every year to make it come back and a perennial is a plant that comes back on its own every year, except that's not really the definition. So we have what we call self-seeding uh, annuals, self-reseeding annuals. There's a lot of plants out there that we think that are perennial that aren't. We're going to talk about one today specifically lamb's quarters. A lot of people think lamb's quarters are perennial. Well, why is it perennial? Well, because you go to the place that the lamb's quarter was growing last year, and the lamb's quarter's growing this year. So it's got to be perennial. For today's discussion, we're going to actually take some things like that and put them in the perennial basket. If you don't have to do anything to get it to come back, or what you have to do is really, really minor, like throw a bunch of mulch on top of where it grew this year and it'll come back next year, or maybe just leave a few in the ground and they will self-resprout even though they're not technically perennial, we're going to call it perennial for this discussion. My grandparents just said the stuff we don't have to plant every year. That, and that's how we're going to come at this uh, today. And this is a huge piece of the whole. Because if you think about it, gardens, no matter how sophisticated we get with mulching and weed block and whatever else we do and gilding and stuff, they do require a significant amount of effort at the beginning of a planting season, whether that's spring going in the summer, or late summer when it's really hard a lot of times to put young plants out that are for a fall garden. And we end up, it's not so much the digging, the starting of seeds and the planting that is that big of a deal. It's really more the, Hey, I just put out all these peppers and tomatoes and now a freeze is going to come in. That's two weeks later than it's supposed to come in. Or gee, we don't have a freeze this year, but here's what happens to us. A lot of times like, We'll get to a point where we're looking out on a fifteen day forecast. We're a little bit before that early free that like last frost date, but we're like, I think I can get these things in early, and then you do. And freeze doesn't come, but spring winds come and you got this little pepper plant out there just I hate my life. I'm gonna quit and die and falls over. So we're putting up wind breaks. There's all kinds of stuff that go with gardening. You know, irrigation is generally more important with your uh, your annuals and your perennials because your perennials establish themselves over season after season after season, Their roots are deep and what have you, and so they are more resilient. So there's a ton of advantages to perennials. We'll dig into that today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Butcher Box. I love Butcher Box, and what I love about look at that picture. If you're on the video, you don't need to know what I love about Butcher Box. That looks like dinner. For those that can't see it, it's a beautiful pork chop. Uh, it looks like a beautiful strip loin steak, a beautiful chicken breast, and a beautiful piece of salmon. What's the side? The piece of rosemary sitting on the chicken is the side. I really do love ButcherBox, and I love the fact that I actually am able to do business with ButcherBox in a way that I wish I, I wish I could do it with every sponsor. I just Most of my sponsors aren't consumables that you use every month. Butcher box pays me with what you're looking at. I'm paid in meat by butcher box. And you see this recurring add on thing. I have a bunch of those in my box too. So I actually spend money with them, even though they pay my sponsorship fee with a credit every month to buy as much of the stuff as I want to with that credit. And those of you that tuned in last week, I want you to know yesterday that thing I promised that I'm going to be doing for my son that he doesn't know about yet. As long as my grandson can keep his mouth shut, my standing rib roast, Uh, beef rib roast that's going to be done as a gorgeous prime rib. I'm going to herb crust it. I'm going to sous vide it nice and slow over time, and then I'm going to finish it. I'm actually going to reverse smoke it like I do brisket. It's going to be phenomenal for Christmas, and that came from ButcherBox. I could have bought it anywhere, but I bought it there. That tells you something. Check out ButcherBox.com if you haven't done so yet. If you're an MSB member and you don't use your MSB discount, you hate money because you get 10 bucks off a box for life. $120 $120 a year, even if you are not an MSB member, use the banner on the site, not so I get credit or anything. There's a discount code in there for you that'll be a one-time discount up front uh, instead of recurring. Next up today, John Pagliano with the Wealth Wealthsteading Podcast. I've pulled his site up before, but I've never pulled him up before. This is the about page at wealthsteading.com. There's John right there smiling at you. Got a headset on in that center photo. Do you know Why? Because John is a prepper, he's a ham radio operator, he's not just a wealth manager. Every time I've had John present here at my place for a workshop, he started out by explaining the first thing you should do before you worry about investing your money is have money and have your basic preps in order. If you can't make sure that your family's going to eat for the next 60 days, you don't need to be buying stock, you need to make sure that your family's going to be okay for 60 to 90 days minimum and build up your skill set, your guard, all that stuff, save money while you're doing it, and then when you have enough wealth amassed, you can start looking at investing. Have you ever heard a wealth manager slash investment advisor on any talking head on any TV screen ever say shit like that? No, and that's why you should be listening to this man right here versus those morons on the TV screen. And with that, let's get back into uh, the main topic for today's show. So, again, I'm I'm coming at this four pillars, and I want to be very clear. I am not coming at the four pillars from the standpoint of you have to have all four pillars. Like if you were building a building, like a pole barn building, you'd have four big, strong poles in each corner or your barn will fall down. You don't have to do all these things, but knowing the things that they're built upon, What that will let you do is pick the ones that work for you because here's an example of what doesn't work for everybody. Livestock, which was our our, our second pillar does not work for everybody. If you're gone a couple days a week, you can do something like quail and you can automate their feed and water to a point where it'll be all right. But if you're gone a week at a time and you don't have anybody at the house, you probably shouldn't even do quail. And quail are probably the easiest thing to automate. Um, there are some automation things that I've seen people do it, so I want to say it's impossible, but it is definitely the case that when you have livestock, you are more tied to your property. So even if you don't work away from home a lot, if you're a person that really loves to travel and you like to take four or five extended trips a year, you might want to let somebody else in the community do the livestock thing. But it's good to know how that particular element fits as a pillar so that you can then compensate for it with what we're going to talk about in the next episode, which is foraging, but I also combined into it local trade and community knowledge, right? So maybe you live in a really small yard and doing a lot of this perennial stuff doesn't make sense, but understanding it will let you figure out how it does fit in and work for you. But if you have a decent sized yard, and I'm talking a tenth of an acre, typical suburban, uh, fifth of an acre, even a twentieth of an acre. You can do a ton with perennials, and with a little automated irrigation, it's actually much easier to have perennials on your property than to worry about having a garden while you're gone. So, again, because they're more robust than their establishment, et cetera. So, anyway, that's, that's why we're coming at it this way. Real quick, let me remind you, I will never contact you for any personal information in the comments below, anywhere on social media, anything like that. If you want to communicate with me, use my email address. I'm Jack, and I run the survivalpodcast.com. Between that and how many times I've given out my email, if you can't figure out my email, I hate to be a dick, but you don't qualify for my time. So there's a little PSA there. And also remember, if you have any questions while you're watching the live feed and you're in the live chat like some of you are right now, go ahead and make sure those are in all caps I am kind of taking a look over here at the other screen once in a while at Rumble. I see Jim over there on Rumble. Hey, Jim, and hey, Great Value TV. See you two guys there. It's harder for me to keep up with questions on that platform, though, but that won't be real important. You put them in all caps. If you are on Twitch or YouTube, I will see your comments in the back screen. I'll be able to star them for follow-up. Facebook, sometimes I see them and sometimes I don't. Like, I'm enjoying mounds. I don't know why. Ask Zuckerberg. All right, so digging into this, let's start talking about what, again, real quick, just what is a perennial again, scientifically versus practically? Because I know if I don't do this, some of the stuff I'm going to talk about today, you're going to get one of these people that's the kind of person that sits in a Star Trek convention and is like, please to explain why in episode 137 you said flux capacitor instead of, you know, neutrino or some shit like that. So scientifically, a perennial is a plant that is able to survive more than two seasons on its own with no help from the parent rootstock. That's a perennial. If it survives one season, goes to seed and dies, it's called a biannual. If it comes back every year, but it's not coming back from the same rootstock, it is an annual that is self-receding. So another, I gave you one example of something that does that. Here's another example, very famous in Texas, blue bonnets. Yeah, I guarantee you, nine out of ten Texans, if, if they know what a perennial is, and you say, are blue bonnets perennial? They say, of course they are. They come back every spring. People pull over on the highway and take pictures with little kids with Easter bonnets on their head and shit. They, of course they're perennial. They're right. They come back every year. They are not perennial. And this is really important if you own land where blue bonnets grow and you want them to come back. You don't cut, you don't mow where your blue bonnets are until they go, the heads fall off. So a lot of people think, well, I'll just wait until they're almost done anyway, and then, I'll mow, and then they go away because they haven't dropped seed. So that's, that's the scientific definition. And K-Box, follow the procedure, and we usually wait till the end, but this is a good one to go ahead and answer right now, are mushrooms. Mushrooms are not perennials or annuals. They're not plants. They're fungi. They're the third kingdom. So we're not going to go on to mushrooms today. But you know what? We haven't done a mushroom show in a long time. Maybe we'll do that when we get back in January after the break. Uh, practically, what are perennials? For this discussion, if it comes back every year on your property and you don't have to do nothing – or you have to do very little, we'll consider that perennial and to make make the botanists among us feel better, we'll call it perennial growing. They grow perennially, even if they're not officially a perennial. And they're valuable to us because they require so much less of our work and they have so much more resiliency. I kind of covered that in the intro, so I won't rehash it here. But I do want to give you a tale of two perennials. And I want to talk about how they were a huge part of settling what we today call America going all the way back to when we were the colonies. And then we were eventually these States United, right? Or these United States. And there was a whole bunch of it. that wasn't quite States yet. And we had all these people that went out and we called them what homesteaders. And they went out and they claimed pieces of land or they bought pieces of land and they set up little farms and homesteads all across the country. And then the railroads came, and many followed behind that, and we ended up sea to shining sea, as the song goes. Well, there were two perennials that early, um, early folks in the colonial period, through the homesteading period, up through the uh, the revolutionary. I'm sorry, the uh, the Civil War relied on heavily. And understand that as we were settling this country, there were certain things that if you went out and homesteaded. Which going west at one time, like if you were where Pittsburgh is at one time, you'd gone way west. There wasn't a lot of infrastructure. So if you'd gone out into to, 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 to western Ohio or Missouri or Kentucky or Tennessee, you were hell and gone from the world. So while there was a lot of sugar and molasses and things like that that were coming up from the Caribbean, if you were in Boston or Philadelphia... How often a supply came out to like your local little market, if they even had one yet, when you were living out that way was not very frequent. So one of the things, and Ghouli, thank you for the $10 Christmas chat and the $10 super chat and Merry Christmas to you as well. I really appreciate that. So there were certain things you didn't get. And one that you really didn't get was sugar and sugar at the time, was something that was used a lot because food was pretty bland and you needed something to sweeten it up. You also didn't get a lot of salt. Now, we don't have a salt bush that actually produces salt. And salt stores pretty well, so you can bring a big barrel of it. But what salt was mainly used for is what? was flavor. Okay, well, the big barrel of salt lasts a long freaking time. Preservation doesn't last so long. So they needed ways to preserve things as well. So sweet and preservation and alcohol enter two perennials that are as big a part of the footprint of let we we'll call it the white man in North America as, as the white man in North America, right? And they are the fig and the apple. Let's start with the fig. The fig is a, a plant that a lot of people think they can't grow because they're too far north. It'll freeze, the fig will die. Well, a fig will die to the ground if it gets cold enough, depending on the variety. And if it's mulched, it will grow back. But another one, Another way we can handle figs is if we like, we prune the fig and we keep it manageable in size and we completely mulch that sucker in early winter before it gets too cold and protect the wood, we can overwinter figs and they'll come back in the form we left them in in very cold climates. There's a guy that has over 70 fig trees and I'd love to get up there and travel and and, and document it someday. In the Allentown, Pennsylvania area, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, it gets freaking cold. It's borderline zone five, definitely zone six in the area I'm talking about, and he doesn't lose his figs. So they grew figs everywhere they could, and because it was important to them, they did the shit that we're lazy we don't do today, and they made sure they covered them up, and they wintered them through, and they found certain varieties that wintered through better. And anybody here ever make a fig tree? You take a cutting, you stick it in the ground, another fig grows. So it was something that when you left, you could take cuttings with you, and they were remarkably resilient, and you could make more figs anywhere you went. And the primary thing they did with figs was dry them, store them, and use them as sugar. And this was throughout the settlement of North America they did this. Because, again, you're sitting off in Kentucky somewhere, and you want to make something with some sugar in it, well, good luck getting some at the time I'm talking about. But you'll see in the, if you look at the period recipes, a lot of times it will say to use a certain measurement of chopped, either fresh or dried figs because they're incredibly sweet and have a high sugar content. Or you'll see a recipe that'll call for X amount of sugar. And it'll say something like, if you can get it, if not use this amount of figs. So, That was a huge reason that we grew figs, and I don't know if you've ever eaten a fresh fig, but it's a total different experience than a fig newton, let me tell you that. Next up is the apple, and the apple took a lot longer to get in production, but you could carry with you as you went off to settle, if you wanted, you could carry easily a 1,000 apple trees. How would you do that? In a little bitty pouch with a 1,000 apple seeds in it. And people say, well, those you don't know what you're going to get. Exactly. But you know what you're going to get if you plant a bunch of apples? A bunch of different apples, even if they all came from the same seed stock. You're going to get different apples that do different things. And if you read a book called Old Southern Apples, you'll find all kinds of apples that were grown for specific reasons. And once they were proven out, yeah, they started grafting and things like that. It was a skill the average person would have had if they were a homesteader. And what you did is you just went out and you planted an apple orchard. And you didn't worry about what you were going to get as those apples grew up. You began to figure out what they were and you'd have some apples that matured really early, were really sweet. They didn't store very well. So those would be eaten apples. In other words, it comes off the tree and we eat it or we make cake or pie out of it or something. Also a sugar source. You had apples that had incredibly high sugar content but they they had an astringency and they didn't taste really well. And those became apples that we made ciders and wines and brandies with. We had apples that were way more predisposed to ferment, but then bring over and make vinegar. Now we had a means of storage and I could probably do a whole show just on the uses of apples at this time in America. Suffice to say that there were apples that were best for making apple butter. There were apples that were best for making cider, hard cider, ones that were best for eating. And there were ones that stored really well that were decent eating apples. And those were apples that you put up in the larder through the winter. So you had some form of fruit during your winter. Now, that's just two, but those two are probably the most impactful perennials that were brought along for the journey by early folks that settled America. I just thought it was really interesting for this discussion. Let's talk about some top perennials for your backyard. And remember, some of these are actually annuals, but they come back on their own. And you might have these on your property, even if you only have like a half acre to an acre or less, you'll have some of them anyway, that you may never have to plant. And as long as you don't go on some weird quest to eradicate them, They'll come back every year, and they're fantastic food to support human nutrition. The first is one of my favorite, and it's the bane of many people's existence: lamb's quarters. I have lamb's quarters on my property, and if you're ever here and you just take some seed off my lamb's quarter plants, because if you're here, you'll probably be here in the fall, and I don't care if you do. You're getting seed that I've been that I brought here, even though it grows native in the area. That I grew in Arlington? I grew it in Arlington, Texas. I grew it in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Now I'm growing it here near Azel, Texas. And the way I found that is I was fishing one day by the side of a creek, and this kind of ties in with the fourth pillar we'll get to, and everything was dead. It was a pretty dry time of the summer, and I found this one little clump of green, and there were some lambsquarters growing in it. And I thought, that's a really hardy particular, you know, race of lambsquarter. And so I used to fish this little creek all the time, film videos there and stuff. So every time I went, I was manually watering these 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 lambs quarters to get them all the way through. And then that season I took seed and I've I've spread that seed everywhere that I've lived and I've given away tons of it. So I have lambs quarters growing here. There'd probably be lambs quarters here. even if I didn't do that. And they're best when they're young. So up to about a foot tall, you take the whole plant and brace them. They're delicious. They taste like spinach when you cook them. I'm not a fan raw. Some people like them raw. I'm not. The seed is like in a survival situation, the seed is a very high protein meal that could be mixed into things that would make more of a conventional bread. It doesn't make a good flour by itself, but using them kind of like putting poppy seeds into a pretzel, I guess, would be a way to look at it to get that protein yield. Uh, Historically, it was often wrapped into bannock. If you know what bannock is, basically you carry flour with you, make bread on a stick when you camp and when you're out exploring or what have you. But if you if you put the lamb's quarter seed or plantain seeds, by the way, into your bannock, you're getting a much higher protein result out of that. Next is chickweed. If you don't have chickens, if you have chickens and ducks, the only way you're going to have chickweed is they can't get to it because there's a reason they call it chickweed. But I love chickweed. Um I think it kind of reminds me of the taste of corn silk, but I'm not going to sit down and eat a bowl of corn silk. So I can't really uh can't really justify that uh as far as uh as why I like uh chickweed so much. But it's a really great plant. It's also a good medicinal. It goes good in salves for wounds along with like plantain and comfrey. Uh dandelion, I mean dandelion's something people are out trying to constantly get rid of, right? Dandelion is actually an incredibly useful plant. It's a medicinal plant, and the book that I recommended yesterday, the uh, the, the the new Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook by James Green, his first project in that book for you is making a dandelion tincture. But the leaves are often thought of as being really bitter in dandelion, but that is generally the more solar exposure and the older the leaf, the more bitter it becomes. So if you have dandelion growing in a naturally shady area and you harvest those leaves young, you get a really great pot herb or vegetable or salad green. If you want to provide a little shade where you find a little bit of dandelion growing, you got that. It also, the dandelion flowers are edible. They're a medicinal and they make a fantastic dandelion wine. And you can look that up if you want to see how to make dandelion blossom wine. But basically you're making a wine wine from a sugar uh, solution that you're also just throwing a shitload of dandelion flowers and you want to pick the green off of those. That's the only time consuming thing. So dandelions, chicories, Uh, many chicories are actually biannuals. But for our definition today, if it comes back on its own, we're going to use it as a perennial. And you'll find often if you if you learn what to look for, you'll have various chicory that grows on your property. I've actually seeded it here, and it keeps coming back. So that's the same to me. Uh, Chicory is a great uh, plant that you can use. Plantain. Um, most of the country, if you, especially an irrigated uh, property, unless you are using some sort of herbicide to make it go away, you will have a hard time not having broadleaf plantain. It's both an edible and a medicinal and, again, an emergency protein source with its seed heads, though it's kind of a – It's kind of a uh, taxing process to harvest that much seed from it. But, again, a good protein boost in a survival situation, but an excellent medicine. Plantain and comfrey together are excellent medicine for so many things like wounds and salves and stuff like that. Uh, Purslane. I even have Kenberry, the carnivore of carnivores, growing purslane everywhere. Purslane is a delicious plant. Uh, people worry about oxalates in it, like they do with spinach and stuff like that. If you're living on it, worry about it. If you're using it as a salad green, shut up. If you're tossing it in some soup, some once in a while or whatever, shut up. It's not worth worrying about. You're gonna you're gonna die someday anyway. At least you die to something. I'll just leave it at that because I'm tired of talking about the oxalate thing. Wild garlic. Wild garlic, I have about five different varieties of wild garlic on my property. It takes care of itself. I don't ever do anything. It's a narrow window in the spring when it's really good for harvest. I almost never pull it out of the ground and use the roots. Um, I take limited harvest of the bulblets that form on the top because that helps spread it and make more. And those are delicious. The flowers, and then once the flowers form the little bulblets, absolutely fantastic. And when I got here, there wasn't any. All of it was like, oh, look, wild garlic, and and picking those bulblets and bringing them home and scattering them, or in some cases actually digging it up and planting it. I will dig up and replant wild garlic in the winter. I will not do it any other time. I've had very poor results with it surviving uh, that procedure. So those are all perennials that just may exist either around you or already in your backyard, and there's more of them. But it's the kind of thing that people don't really look at and understand the value of what's there. And it's the kind of thing that my grandfather would have plumb. And I'm talking about my Ukrainian grandfather. Now he would have plumb stabbed somebody and killed them. If they had sprayed any sort of weed killer on his property. Now this is the eighties and the seventies. This was not the, he was not a granola chew and hippie. Okay. This was not like, Preserve the environment at all costs. That's not what I'm talking about from this guy. It was the pure value that he knew was in that little, that, that yard of his. It was about an acre that was like a little mini pasture. It was the red clover and the white clover that the rabbits came and fed on, like the value of that. He knew that that clover was bringing in bees and the bees were making his tomatoes more productive, et cetera. And so he valued that yard, not cause he was an environmentalist, cause he really wasn't. I don't think he would have understood the word environmentalist. He'd be like, well, if you mean don't shit up the planet, that's, that's good. Yeah. I mean, he was not the kind of person that, that we think of today as an environmentalist. He wasn't like, he did use some pesticide, not a lot. He only used it when it was absolutely in his mind necessary, but. He, he wasn't a person that was afraid to use conventional fertilizer. He wasn't a person that was afraid to use uh, selective targeted use of a pesticide. I don't use either of those today, but I don't have any hard feelings for my grandfather because he did. And yet he would have flat. I'm talking killed somebody, buried him in the strip mine behind the property. If they had put a drop of freaking weed killer on his property because those were not weeds to him. And that's what I'm trying to get across in this, in this part of the series, how valuable these things are. And we have gone out of our way to eradicate them. When we look at herbs that we would more think of as a cultivated herb that we would plant, and many of these will establish themselves the same way as the last ones. Bee balm, I think, is a hugely valuable plant. And people complain about it because it spreads a lot and it will become invasive. That just means a plant that grows really good, does something and doesn't die. And I'm all, and if it's useful, I'm all about that. And it's really easy to control because you just cut it where you don't want it. And eventually it stops going there and think about where you plant it. But bee balm to me is a tea plant and it's also known as wild bergamot because it has that velvety type texture and flavor when it's in a tea, the oil of bergamot, which is a type of citrus that comes from Italy uh, creates, which is what you spray black tea with to make Earl Grey. So it, it will give that velvety texture mouthfeel to any herbal tea and it makes a good tea in its, its own right. And then, you know, they call it bee balm because it has these big, beautiful flowers on it. Bees love it. All your native pollinators love it. Predatory wasps that also use, uh, pollen love it. Uh, it's just a fantastic plant. Um uh, next up, comfrey. Now, Comfrey to me, it's an herb, it's a medicine, it's a vegetable. It's I, I didn't really know where to put it because it's also a root crop that we're going to talk about in a bit. Uh, but I'll just put it in herbs. And it's, you know, well, can I, I've done whole shows about comfrey because it's a medicinal. It's one of the best medicinals for shallow wounds and healing that you'll get. Uh, D. Wells, who did most of the, the research that was really done in earnest on comfrey mid-century, last century, You know, he he tested it on people that were elderly and on their last legs in in nursing homes that were going to die, you know, relatively soon. And it was even hard to do back then that had bed sores that whatever they did would not heal. And he applied comfrey to them and they actually healed. And that's a very unhealthy person at the end of their life. That says something about the miracle that comfrey is the government hates it. If the government hates a thing, I love it. I'll just put it to you that way. They've said that we can't use it internally despite 10,000 years of human history of using it internally with never having problems with it. The research that was done that did this, it was the equivalent of you eating 60,000 leaves of comfrey in about 90 days. If you really want to hurt yourself, I think 60,000 leaves of anything. They used extracts and they force fed these rats and mice and they blew up their liver and, you, know, I, you worry about it if you want to. Comfrey is something i always grow. Mints, and technically bee balm a mint, but when I say mint in this case, I mean mint that has a mint characteristic to it. Peppermint, spearmint, there's a lot of rare mints uh, out there. I grow iced hazelnut mint. I grow a mint called candy pops. Um, mints, to me, again, you've got just this incredibly valuable plant because everybody knows mint tea and it smells good and it looks pretty and whatever. But if you let your mint go to flower, it is an incredible call to all pollinators as well. It's also a good plant to create distraction uh, so that predators can find prey. And if you don't want it taking over an area, there's a couple things you can do. One, you can use it as a ground cover and grow tall things with it, and it won't it won't choke out tall things. It doesn't grow big long vines or anything like that. And keep it cut back to, till your tall stuff gets up high enough. The other is you can put it in pots, and this just requires making sure you irrigate that and place it in areas in and around where you want to create predatory habitat uh, with your annuals and other plants that you grow. Chives. I grow chives everywhere I can get chives to grow. I got garlic chives going to the point where they became a weed. And it turns out I'm not a huge fan of garlic chive myself. I like onion chives a little bit better. But they are a fantastic, I mean, everybody knows what a chive is. Chives and sour cream and, and, and potatoes are a classic for a reason because they taste so good. I put chives on just about anything. But I really like fresh chives on the top of a finish for soups. Uh, but I also like to let them go to flour. Because again, we're back to bringing this insectary together. We're talking about distractive smells. We're talking about a plant that the longer we let it grow, the more it expands and reproduces itself. And chives are like, they're the plant that will invade the hell out of a space that you can put anywhere. I've never had a problem growing anything in and around chives. And I've never seen chives really, again, I'm talking onion chives here, choke anything else out. So chives, you can grow clumps of chives right in your annual garden and, I, except for the really harsh time of year, you can grab a clump of it, pull it out of the soil, assuming it's loose, and tuck it in somewhere else. Give it some shade for a couple days. It'll take off running again, and you can keep per, per, you know, making more of it that way. Sage, I grow sage in a dedicated grow area because it's a big plant. It kind of shades everything else out, but it was a sacred herb among Native Americans who would burn sage as offerings and as a cleansing thing. I don't know about that, but I also don't discount things like that from cultures that have a deep, rich history and tend to have a lot of things to teach us that we'll learn. But I use it specifically, I use it heavily when I'm cooking any kind of poultry. So chicken, turkey, etc. just sage goes really good with, and honestly, sage and apple go really good together. Check that shit out if you want to. Oregano, this is a plant that a lot of people think of. It's an annual. It's a perennial. It may not go perennial for you, but I've had confirmed reports to USDA Zone 6 with heavy mulching in the dormant period, the per- oregano back season after season after season. Great herb, another herb that was held in very high regard by ancient Europeans as well. Moving on to shrubs, vines, and cane fruits. Now we're getting the stuff that people usually think of with perennials. Kind of my top ones from my experience are, first of all, cane fruits, blackberries and raspberries raspberries do not do well here so i grow blackberries because raspberries in this climate just don't gel well together and that i wanted to at that moment kind of pause and say something i say this about gardening i also say this about perennials grow what wants to grow for you don't make your life hard if you want to try rare things or things that aren't supposed to work i think that's great try one or two at a time and if they if they work out without too much effort and you've done it great and if not move on and try something else but for your core stuff, the stuff you're going to rely on, use that local intelligence. Find out what people grow commercially. Find out what old gardeners grow. Find out what people say, I can't get rid of it. And if it's useful, grow the hat or grow the analog to that. If there's wild amaranth everywhere around you, not a, not a perennial, but if there's wild amaranth any, everywhere around you, then a grain amaranth or a vegetable amaranth is probably going to do well. And if you, ha- you live in a place like I do with alkaline soils, amaranth is probably going to do well don't fight the stream so to speak uh but bl- blackberries and raspberries both have the berry that we're so happy about we always want to talk about but i don't know if you know this but the the leaves of both plants make excellent tea they make an excellent green or fresh tea they both also can be fermented the way they do black tea no caffeine in it though but you can make a really good black fermented tea and if you, I don't know if you know this either but All the tea you drink, green tea, black tea, oolong, it all comes from a plant called camilla. And it's just when it's picked, where it's picked from on the bush, and how it's treated after the fact. Green teas are dried, and then you have green tea. Black teas are fermented. That's what turns them black. And you can look up how to do it, but you can also make a black tea and then use a black tea herbal tea blend with your raspberry or blackberry leaves. Bush cherries. This is something... The sand, native sand cherries that are from like the area around the Dakotas and things like that did really well for me here. I did eventually lose a lot of them in serious, serious drought without providing them any irrigation. But they made it quite a few seasons before they came to this last drought. And I probably have some places I'm going to put some again that will get irrigation so that we'll have them more long term. But the, the native sand cherries that we call a bush cherry in North America, they are a mixed bag. I had some that would produce a really usable fruit for like a ferment for like making a meat or something like that, or a juice extraction that you would then sweeten uh, if if that was your your thing, or you could make a jelly out of, but the astringency never really left them. And I had some that as long as you left them on the plant long enough, you eat them out of hand and they were delicious. And this is because they are grown generally as seedlings rather than clones. They're still a wild form plant. And a lot like I talked about, that our early settler ancestors did with the apple. You just don't know what you're going to get, so you plant a lot of them. Conversely, the Asian bush cherries, Korean bush cherry, Japanese bush cherry, et cetera, these things have been cultivated for a very long time in their native area, and so they have been selected over time to be incredibly delicious and sweet for eating out of hand. And they're definitely worth looking into. They did produce for me here. They did not, they were not happy here. They didn't like the the combination of the heat, the shallow soils and the alkalinity of my soil. So I probably won't try to do them again. I just didn't find them to be worth it. And I would go more toward the other sanctuary, but I'll just put them together for this discussion. Blueberries. I think blueberries, a plant you can grow anywhere. I can't grow it here in the ground, but it does fine in containers. You need to, you need to push your soil to the acid side of things. Uh, An organic azalea fertilizer would be a great way to go if you can't find an organic blueberry fertilizer to keep things in that acidic uh, plane. But it's an excellent plant. It's something we relied a lot on as forage, but I'll say more about that in episode four. Uh, Kiwis. Kiwis are something a lot of y'all don't think you can grow. It's too cold where you are. I wish I was where it was colder because it would be easier to grow things like Arctic kiwi and cold hardy kiwi. We all think of kiwis as a little fuzzy, potato-looking, green-fruited thing with the seeds in it that we can get at the grocery store. Well, that's because the more common, as I said, more common variety of kiwi does not look like that. The more common variety of kiwi looks like a big grape. It has no fuzz on it. It tastes an awful lot like that green one, but a little more fruity, a little more toward the watermelon side of taste of, of a kiwi, in my opinion and you, one vine can produce easily 100 pounds of fruit. It is amazing. It just doesn't store really well. That's, that, that's part of that issue there. It also needs to have a male and a female for pollination, unless you want to get fancy and graft some male tips onto your female. Sometimes they grow really huge. I've seen one video of one growing somewhere in New England. It was either Massachusetts or Connecticut, and the vine going up this – I think it was a a maple was freaking people on the air looking at my hands, but about like, think of a four inch piece, piece of PVC drain pipe. That was the base of the vine going up into the tree. And it spanned across like five trees and they were just shaking the shit out of it. And the Kiwis were dropping down. You can prune it. So it doesn't get that big. If you're thinking it gets too big, but it's definitely worth looking into. And it's something, this is something I try to get across to people in all of this. Where are you going to buy one? Now, if you live next to somebody that has one of those and goes to the farmer's market, maybe you have a place. I've never seen one in a store. And I've gone to the fancy ones, the Whole Foods and the Central Market. I've never seen those. So it's something you cannot buy. And that has, to me, a special kind of value, especially when it does so well in so much of our climate. And it will grow in my climate. It just doesn't like my soils. And since it's a relatively large plant, I don't want to try to grow it in a container. Grapes. Think about this. There's really great wineries, believe it or not, in Florida. There's some really amazing wineries in Texas. Everybody thinks about California, but the whole West Coast from SoCal all the way up into Washington and into into eastern, I'm sorry, western Canada. There's incredible wineries. There's great wineries now starting to, to show up because they stopped just growing muscadines and making sugar wine. And when I say sugar wine, I mean the final product is sweet as hell. There ain't nothing wrong with muscadines, but the muscadine wine you can buy is generally swill. But we're starting to have some really good wineries pop up in Tennessee, Kentucky, in Michigan. You're starting to see something go on here. And, again, Texas Panhandle. We have some fantastic. Fantastic Texas wines. There's a dude that's about three miles from my house that has a wine bar. Really cool place. And he's growing grapes on that property, and they're doing pretty well. He's doing art by Lee Murphy's black Spanish, and that's one of the grapes he's grown is black Spanish. But he's sourcing most of his grapes, but he's sourcing his grapes from a place called Grapevine, Texas, and he's sourcing some from the hill country. He makes fantastic wines. The best rieslings, in my opinion, riesling is a type of grape and a type of wine, are made in the Finger Lakes region of New York. You see the climate variation there. What does this mean? This means wherever you are, fruit or wine, there is a vine for you that will produce grapes. There's different. Um, there's different grape diseases, and but there's been so, because it's such a commercial crop. There's been so much breeding and crossbreeding and hybridization and things like that in the world of grapes. Don't worry about GMOs. I have not yet seen a GMO grape. I'm sure they'll exist at some point. Hybrids are not GMOs. One more time. Hybrids are not GMOs. Go look up hybrid versus GMO on my site. Did a whole show on it one time, but because there's been so much, so much effort and it's such a money crop when we start talking about vineyards for wine, there's a tremendous amount of research and effort that's gone on for hundreds of years to make sure that wherever you are, there is a grape you can grow. So that, and, and then they, they are a vertical growing plant. They can grow on fences, trellises, arbors, pergolas. So they take up almost no space when they're cultivated properly. So it's something I think everybody should consider. Next up, gojis. Man, you want a hardcore survivor of a plant. You want goji berries. They're marketed as a superfood. I do think they're very nutritional. I don't use the word superfood unless I'm talking about beef or deer or something else that's red meat. That's a real superfood to me. But the way we ended up with goji berries in North America is another fascinating story. So when we built the railroads across this country, everybody talks about how the the United States was a slave nation. but we employed a whole variety of slave labor, I guess you could call it, that were not necessarily slaves. They were just people who were treated like absolute shit and considered like the low end of society, even if they weren't owned. Uh, this would include the Northeast with coal mining, et cetera, of the Irish and many of the Slovakian uh, cultures like my family is from. Uh, and in, in the railroads in particular, Asian in particular, Chinese. Well, when these folks came over here, they brought goji berry with them and they ate them a lot uh, because there is a, a very deep-rooted culture of it being a berry that can be used for tonifying medicinal purposes as well as other things in chinese medicine and so they brought these things and they can be dried and they actually taste a lot better dried when you eat them fresh I don't mind them, but I'm, I'm not going to eat a bowl of them. And I don't advise a bowl of them anyway because you'll shit through the eye of a needle if you do it. But when you eat them, they have like a – they're not that sweet. And they have a taste that I could see that some people would consider off-putting. And they're actually a nightshade, by the way. Uh, not a deadly nightshade, but they're night—they're from the nightshade family. When you dry them, they become very sweet, and they store for damn near ever. So they were a great treat to take with you if you're working on the railroad out in the middle of the desert in Utah. So after you eat, you poop, right? That's just how humans work. And if you're working on the desert in the desert on a railroad in Utah in the middle of nowhere and you got to poop, you don't go to the bathroom. You go behind a bush and you take a dump. If you take a dump and there's seeds in your dump, that's why fruits like to be eaten. Seeds pass through the digestive tract. And it's it's landed with fertilizer, and so we started to find. In fact, there's a very famous variety of uh, of of goji in the Utah and Arizona and all through that area. There's one called Phoenix Tears. It's not actually from Arizona, i.e. Phoenix. It's from Utah, and they go back hundreds of years from those immigrants. So if it can survive there, it can survive anywhere. And there's something you need to know about it. And that is one of the reasons it survives is it'll look like it dies in the heat of summer. So every year, mine all turn green and they start exploding. They put little blue flowers on and they start making berries. And all the ones the chickens can't jump up and my rooster jumps up and feeds them to his hands. All the ones they don't get, I get to eat. And then all of a sudden it starts to get really hot. And the plant just looks like it dies. Well, it goes dormant. And then it comes back late summer, early fall and grows until it gets really cold and then it goes dormant again. So it goes in two cycles every year. The other thing about it, you take a green stemmed, you know, nice green cutting. So a soft wood cutting of goji. So what you want is a green stem that if you bend it, it won't just fold over. It'll kind of snap at that stage and you cut it and you stick it in moist soil and stick it in the shade in five days. It'll have roots on it. And in about 20 days, you can plant it somewhere as long as you protect it. So you can make as many of them as you want. So the other thing I'll tell you about them, they don't travel well. So if you order some from a mail order catalog, they're probably going to look like dog crap when you get them. Just take care of them. Don't plant them out in the sun or something right away. Pot them in a little bigger pot. Give them a lot of protection and moisture till they come around. You might even grow them through that first season in a container and then put them out in the fall. And once you get that going, you can make your cuttings and make as many as you want if you can't get them from a friend. Uh, Next up, artichokes. Artichokes are another plant people think they can't grow. They will handle up to about zone six with proper care as far as being a perennial. Of course, I'm talking about globe artichokes here. It's not something that's a big deal here in America, and it's probably because most people don't know what to do with an artichoke. If I gave you a globe artichoke, most people would look at it and go, what's that? Or they'd go, oh, it's an artichoke. Fix it for me because I don't know what to do. I'm not going to do a class on how to use artichokes, but I'm just going to say they're delicious. And they are used heavily in Mediterranean culture, as many of y'all know. And they're definitely something worth looking into. Root crops. This is where we're going to go. Most of this is not scientifically perennial, but if we handle it the right way, it can be perennial or be so easy that it might as well be perennial. The first one on that is sweet potato. What I found here is when I harvest my sweet potatoes, if I'll take the tubers that have formed really shallow and I harvest them and I go deeper and leave one and mulch that area, even in my coldest winters, they'll come back around If they're in the ground, my big, tall, raised beds where the cold is around and you only get so much insulation, my coldest winters still kill them. But most of my winters they'll come back from. The other thing, though, is if we just have one sweet potato, we can make so many slips so easily and they grow so aggressively, it's really not like starting tomatoes or peppers. So they can be perennial like for you. And I just think they're such an amazing plant because I grow them far more for the greens for myself and the birds than I do for the tubers. Cause I don't need a lot of carbohydrates, but they're also a plant that a lot of people that have trouble growing conventional potato can grow. I These are one they're right on that level between a practical perennial and an annual and where you live will make that more or less true. Groundnut. Groundnut is something you can grow as long as you keep the place moist and you want partial shade. You can grow groundnuts. I'm convinced anywhere in the country. I've had people send me wild groundnuts that they harvested from uh, creek banks in Maine, and I grow them here in Texas. That is about as wide of a uh, a climate variation as you're going to get. I'm sure if you get into zone two or three, maybe they, they conk out on being able to survive but they grow like a potato. They're kind of somewhere between a potato and a water chestnut in flavor. They come back every year. They were a staple crop of early settlers and Native Americans who less cultivated them and more took care of them in the wild. So like we had like a wild cultivation. They like moisture. The reason they like moisture is not because they're particularly not hardy, but because they have very shallow roots. So, when you, when you pull up groundnut, you'll find that your tubers will be about an inch below the soil surface and below the bottom of the tubers, there's almost no root structure at all. So, they just simply don't have, unlike most perennials, they don't have that deep root structure. So, where they like to grow, they like to grow on creek banks and specifically on creek banks where they get a lot of sun in the in the early part of the day and are shaded in the afternoon in the, the most intense heat. So mimic that. But they are fantastic. They are high in inulin. They actually reduce blood sugar, even though they have some carbohydrate in them. Uh, and these were actually a plant that was grown for export for a time back to Europe before the kind of fad on it and the fact that you could only take so much and it was really a two-year biannual harvest. And it, there, there was just other things that took over commercially. The same can be said, uh, though less for the same reason of uh, Jerusalem artichoke, which we'll talk about later. Uh, horseradish. Horseradish is it's perennial, but when you harvest it, it's harvested. So it's not like a lot of perennials where we can take something and the plant takes care of itself. But I'm gonna tell you, my I'll tell you what, a Ukrainian grandma loves her some horseradish. And my grandmother made horseradish. She made just plain old grated horseradish sauce, she'd call it sauce. So it was basically grated horseradish in a jar. And she made pickled horseradish sauce in a jar. You know how Ukrainian grandmas make pickled horseradish? You grate up some horseradish and you put it in a jar and you take some of the leftover pickled beet juice and you dump it on it. That was it, but every year when I harvested horseradish, what she would do, she would cut the tops off like you're cutting the tops off a carrot, and she'd put them back where you found them, and I just took the top pieces of the horseradish and stuck it back in the ground, and every year there was horseradish there, so it is a fantastic plant if you like the flavor. I do. I like that bite. It's uh, most of the stuff that you guys have ever had that they call wasabi in America is 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 green-colored horseradish is what it really is. True wasabi, you can get it, but it's kind of difficult. If you want some true freeze-dried wasabi powder from actual wasabi, you can go to the Survival Podcast, search for wasabi, and you'll find an item of the day on t fast that is freeze-dried authentic wasabi, and it is different. But horseradish is pretty damn close, and I love me some horseradish, like with steak like or like prime rib. I'm just saying my grandmother loved it with kielbasa. So sliced and then fried kielbasa sausage. If you don't know what that is, it's a smoked Polish sausage and a dab of that pickled beet juice horseradish. Just freaking amazing. What I'll tell you about horseradish. I don't know if they call it that because horses eat it or just because a lot of things that are big, they call horse like horse chestnut. Right. Um, But ducks eat the tops of horseradish chickens eat it It, not as much but they eat it but geese geese are like first thing i'm going to do is find every member of the thistle family on this property like your thistles you're always trying to get rid of geese will eat it to the ground your prickly lettuces and stuff like that boom and when they eliminate that they're like is there any horseradish here and so the only way I've been able to cultivate horseradish is up in my raised beds or wicking beds, because if I put it in the ground where they can get to it, they will eat it until it stops coming back. So Just a little heads up on that. And then Jerusalem artichoke. This is definitely an annual uh, as far as because the root that grows this year does not grow next year. If you plant a Jerusalem artichoke, just one piece of Jerusalem artichoke, and you grow just that, When you dig that up and get all those tubers, it'll be incredibly productive. You'll find a tuber that's brown instead of, you know, some are reddish, bluish, white, whatever, pinkish. You'll find one that's like a dark brown. And when you squeeze it, it'll just collapse. That's the seed tuber. And so all the new tubers it sets are new growth, and they'll grow the next year. So it doesn't come back from a common root. This is a plant I don't eat as much of it as I used to because I've cut back on carbohydrates. They also call them fartichokes, folks, and there's a reason. But what I've found is if you lacto-ferment them, they don't have that effect. And they don't have that effect on everybody. They did on me. Sliced up and fried like potatoes, they're freaking delicious, and I still eat some that way from time to time. Uh, but they are a great survival crop. The only thing you have to do, this is going to sound crazy, the only thing you have to do to ensure that you have Jerusalem artichokes long term is harvest some every year. If you don't harvest them at all, what will tend to happen is they'll so overproduce, they'll choke themselves out. If you have them spreading to an area you don't want them, this is what people worry about. It's going to invade. Okay, this is simple. As it starts to spread past the place you want it, in the early part of the year when the sprouts start coming up, you do nothing wait till they're about 12 inches tall and pull them out of the ground. Most of them will pop right out and that tuber will be hollow and have expended all its energy. And now it's gone. I learned that from Dave Jackie at a seminar he taught at. And if you do break one off, you know, it micro back and you just do that. And you'll control them very easily with no effort. And when they're young and tender like that, a lot of livestock will eat them as well. So you can graze that area as long as you can protect your young plants as well. Anyway, next up, um, moving to like true vegetables that can be perennial or plants that we use or grow like vegetables. And some of these are biannual, but they will act perennial if you do things the right way. So first one, and this is one you're not going to believe me if you've grown this plant and it ain't come back for you. Scarlet runner bean, all of the runner beans can be perennial if it doesn't get too cold and if you mulch the root into the ground. So your scarlet runners, your half runners, all of those delicious green beans when they're flat and young. And if you want dry beans, you let them get that big, beautiful beans that make a great dry bean bean product. I've done it successfully once because I was on it and tried it and made it work you mulch, and I mean six inches of wood mulch on top of those roots. And, again, if you're growing in wicking beds or high-raised beds where the cold is more around it, it may be more difficult to pull off than truly in the ground. Um, over time, their roots get deeper and deeper. They become more and more hardy. And so in some places what will happen is a person will try it. It won't work. They'll try it next year. They'll get a mild winter. They get them through one winter and then they get really, really hardy. So just exactly how that works out. I don't know, but, but I have done it and it does work. There's a plant called good King Henry. It's a member of the same family that spinach comes from. It tastes like you guessed it's spinach and the young flower shoot heads before they produce are kind of like broccoli. That's a plant you can find for sale by cutting and division, et cetera, from a lot of different places. Um, one of the places I used to recommend, and I don't recommend anything from these guys anymore unless you're a large commercial operation or a reseller, is called Oikos O I K O S Tree Crops, and they've just gone insane and they don't sell small quantities anymore. So, like the cheapest you know line item on their website is like 200 bucks now. Uh, but if you're a reseller, you might want to check those guys out. They were a source I used to recommend for this plant, but with a little Google foo, you can find other places. New Zealand spinach. This will not be perennial for everybody. It is here. I have no problem overwintering it here. Again, this is more of like just throw some mulch on it to give it an insurance policy. New Zealand spinach tastes a lot like when you cook it. Spinach, it is, a as far as I'm concerned, is a raw plant, like in a salad is shit. A little bit of it will work. It's funny enough. Like if it's 5% of the salad, it, I actually kind of like what it does. Anything more than that. I just don't really care for it raw. It grows a seed that looks like a little cathrop or something. Like you throw it, and somebody barefoot would get stabbed with it, and it would hurt, and you'd laugh at them. But it's 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 easy to come by seed for. Really easy to grow once you get it established. Again, it's another one of those plants that if you get it through one winter, then it gets really really hardy in subsequent winters. And if you lose it, it's cheap and easy to replant. Uh, lovage, straight up perennial. Kind of use it like celery. Wonderful plant. Definitely recommend it. Easy plant to grow, establish, and keep going, especially like in a garden situation. Celery. Celery's a biannual. I've always had misery getting celery seed to start. What I started doing a long time ago, and I do grow some Chinese pink and Chinese white celery, and now I grow this that way too once I got through starting some seed and get it going. I plant the core of a celery plant from a grocery store. So I go to the grocery store, buy celery, and instead of cutting the bottom off, pull the outer stalks off and leave the heart. Get down to where you have about three, four stalks of that heart. Harden that off before you put it out in the garden in the ground. So you can just take a glass of water, set the base in the water, set it on your countertop, let it get some windshield, some window sunlight. And when it turns dark green, so it's now it's hardened off, now you can plant it somewhere. Make sure it stays really well watered. Let it grow. Pick, use it as a cutting celery, not as a, a blanched celery, which is what you're buying in the grocery store. It'll have a lot more intense flavor. And at some point, leave it alone. It will go to seed. It will drop 100,000 gazillion seeds. I counted them. I know it's exactly 100,000. I actually have no idea. But it will reseed and you'll have millions of little celery plants come up. And you can plant them anywhere you want. You know where it does really good? Ebb and flow beds and aquaponics systems. does fantastic in ebb and flow building uh, systems. I've had 50-gallon tubs in ebb and flow uh, aquaponics where the whole freaking thing is nothing but celery. I was basically using celery leaf instead of parsley because I had so much of it. And, and it's, again, it's a biannual, which means it will grow one season over winter, grow the next season, send up a seed stalk. And when that seed stalk comes up, the celery itself is going to its just like cilantro. When cilantro goes to the seed, it tastes like feet. I love cilantro. I'm not one of those people that don't like cilantro. But when it sends that stalk up and the leaf form changes, it tastes like feet. So that's how it So when it sends that stalk up, leave it alone. Let it go. Don't try to save it. Don't try to cut the stock out of it. Let it seed. And, and, and that way, it's going to select. It's going to naturally select the seeds that want to grow for you. Moving on. Um, Swiss chard. Same as celery. Exact same approach to that. It'll keep coming back for you that way. And I've had Swiss chard, even though it's technically a biannual three and four seasons in. I've, like, had to move stuff, change a bed out and pulled up, because Swiss chard is basically a member of the beet family, and it looks like a funky-looking, gross-looking beet. And I've pulled up roots that are like, you know, the size of half my arm and my hand, and replanted them and have them just start growing back. Eventually, it will go to seed, and you can do the same thing. Let it happen. Let the pollinators come. Let the seed drop. It'll self-receive most of the time and grow back for you. Some kales, kind of the same way, but some kales can go on for almost ever. We have these kales they call tree kales and stuff like that. Most of those are just kale that people didn't decide to end their life. They just let them keep growing. And they'll grow up like a tree, but if that tree will bend over and you take the stalk and you put dirt over it, the stalk will root and you kind of reset it back to a lower growing thing that's a little bit easier to manage. There's also sea kales that are straight up perennials as well. Uh, that you can look into. Sorrel, regular sorrel. Some people call it sheep sorrel and red vein. I love the red vein because it looks beautiful. It has a really great taste. Chefs are paying big money for micro green red vein sorrel and for baby red vein sorrel to put two leaves of it on a plate. Hey, you can do that too. And this stuff, it just needs to stay moist and not get too much sun and it will grow and grow and grow for you. Uh, If you have deep clay soils where that big taproot can get down there, it's almost impossible to get rid of it at that point. And peppers, it doesn't count for 90% of y'all, unless you're going to take extraordinary steps. But if you live in the subtropics like Florida, South Texas, SoCal, you can grow peppers year-round. Most people don't know this, and it's why I put it in this show like a little bonus for you. Peppers are a perennial, they are what you would call a short-lived perennial, somewhere depending on the particular race of pepper, five to 15-year bushes. That's what they are. So why don't work? Because they can't handle being frozen. So if you live where peppers freeze, it's actually really easy to heavily prune back a few of your pepper plants every year, dig them out of the ground, put them in containers, bring them inside. They won't look really happy. They'll have little crappy leaves on them and whatever, but they'll have this great big root system. And when you know all danger of frost ha- has passed, you take them out of the pot and put them back in the ground. And I have folks that have been doing that, either just leaving them in a big container or in and out of containers every year, five years. I got one guy five years growing the same three or four pepper plants. He keeps like two jalapenos and two sweet ones. And he lives Prince Edward Island Canada. It gets kind of cold there if you're not familiar with it, but he's bringing them in every year. So peppers are perennials. And a lot of what we grow is perennial that we grow as annual because we live in a temperate climate. Just keep that in mind. Uh, next, trees. I want to go real fast for here. I don't want this to go too long. We're already at hour attendance. Apple and pear have both done OK for me. I have a lot of problems with diseases with apples in my climate in the short Uh, the the shallow growing season and the short cooling period. Most apples want a little bit longer of a cooling period. There are some good warm climate apples, but apples, like I started this whole thing out with have a tremendous history in America. I can't leave them out. The most resilient true fruit tree that I've grown, that we think of as a conventional fruit. Like you go to the store to buy it is pears. I have had the Kajoho Asian pears, Bartlett's, You just about name it, like almost every pear I've planted, even if it's not doing well, is still alive, which is saying something in this climate. And I had some pears this year that were incredibly productive in one of the worst production years I've ever had. So pear and apple. And the thing about that is there's probably one that can stand in for the other for a variety of purposes if you are not able to grow the other for whatever reason. So, like I mentioned the Asian Kajoho pears. They're kind of an orange skin pear. They're shaped more like an apple than a pear. They're incredibly sweet. That You can tell it's a pear. It doesn't taste like an apple, but it makes a hell of a pear cider. So if that's what you're in the game for, and apples are like they are for me, and they don't do that well, you get a couple here and a couple there, you might look into your Asian pears and making a peri instead of an apple cider, but a less conventional peri. And I have used them to make amazing meats. And the way I do that, I take a, a couple pounds of diced up, uh, cajoho pears and I put them into a one gallon ferment with, with, uh, three pounds of honey and my yeast blend that you can look up on the site if you want to. And that is just one of the best freaking meads I've ever made in my life. And so apple and pear, stone fruit. So your plums, your peaches, et cetera, like those are absolutely, uh, you will be. This is why I put them on there. You'll be able to find something that does well for you. A variety of peach or a variety of plum. Like here, methany plum does really well for me. Uh, there's a couple other varieties that do okay. Early Alberta peach does really well here. Because we get a lot of pests that attack the peaches that come later in the season. So that would be what works. Bruce plum works really well for me. All red plum does pretty well for me. But you'll be able to find something in the stone fruit uh, family. For apricots, blenheim, those uh, blenheim, depending on how you say it, uh, apricots do pretty well from here. We have a tree here we call Plano Man apricot. And it is a blenheim. I figured it out over the years, and it's it's incredibly productive now that it's well-established. It's the only tree that was planted that's still here by the prior homeowner. We left it right where it was, and I won't tell the story about why we call it Plano Man Apricot today. I'll tell that on another episode, but some of you have probably heard it before, and the name actually came from a story that I told Nick Ferguson uh, that I was told by my old business partner, Neil Franklin, and then Nick Ferguson decided to, to christen that tree the Plano Man apricot. Plano, by the way, for those that don't know, is a city uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, next up, this is a, one that gets so overlooked, guys, persimmon. Persimmon, we have a native North American persimmon. It's a huge tree. If you're on a bigger property, I totally recommend those. If nothing else, is a mass fruit for livestock and wildlife. But there is a, there's a few varieties of Asian persimmon that are what are known as non-astringent. And I'm not big on eating fruit and lots of sugar. But when one of my Fuyu's is producing, I eat it. And Fuyu is the variety. It's a relatively small tree if you prune it. It's very productive. And when that persimmon is still firm but orange, it is one of the most delicious things you can put in your mouth. It also makes really good mead. I'm sure it would make a fine fruit wine on its own. I'm sure it would make jams and jellies and all that other stuff that I don't mess around with, but it is a fantastic tree that you can grow in a bush form. Um, next up, you know, think about fodder trees in this whole thing as well. Like Nick Ferguson is always kind of preaching your willows your white mulberry, which is also a fruit, um, and uh, I'm a I'm, uh, hybrid poplar. Those are perennials. We can coppice or pollard them every year. Coppice we cut to the ground. Pollard we cut somewhere above the ground. A low pollard would be about waist height. A high pollard about shoulder height. That would have a lot to do with is something going to eat it that you don't want to eat it until you're ready to harvest it or how you want to work it or what have you. But definitely think about your, your fodder trees. And my last one for you is going to be dogwoods, uh, also known as Cornelian cherries. There are edible dogwoods. I have a few of them here. It took a lot of work to make them survive until they were really established. You will probably not have as much work. They're also one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten. I've not ever made meat out of them because I always end up eating them. Next year, I plan to make a mead. I think I'll have a big enough harvest to make a batch or two of mead, so a couple gallons of mead using them. Last year I got none, but the trees made it through the horrible drought. The year before I was eating them like candy every day. I'm not going to lie. They're just that good. They're just that delicious. Um, That's kind of all like, that's a lot and you don't have to grow all of it. And I'm sure there's, Tons of stuff you're thinking of. Jack should have said this or Jack should have said that. He, I'm just trying to expose you to the way to think about this. And so they feeling perennials. There's not that much to grow. I just spent an hour listing 10% of the perennials. Most of y'all grow. And so there's so much we could be using here. Art by Lee Murphy says Pindo Palm. That's another example. You guys definitely pay attention. It's, it's hard when I'm not with a guest for me to stay on putting these, all these, uh, these comments up like I'm, putting up right now it's it's a lot more work to try to keep up with what's coming in on the chat just so y'all know so if you go watch this video uh you can see the chat as it happened during the live sometimes you'll go to do that and you think like youtube is censoring again not that they won't but when you do a live stream video the chat is not usually immediately available in the replay It, it takes until the back-end processing of the video is completely done because you're not actually watching the final version of the video for about 10 to 20 hours after a live video. And just a little technical piece of knowledge here. So making this all work, right? How do we make this all work for us instead of working for it? We end up, a lot of homesteaders, I find that they're working for their homestead instead of their homestead working for them. So some things you can do. Number one, variety over giant trees. And then I have in parentheses in my notes, maybe. Maybe. So here's what I mean by that. If you want a wide variety and an extended harvest and you have a small backyard and you put in a giant apple tree and a giant peach tree and it shades almost everything out. Maybe you have your little garden over here. but You don't have a tremendous amount of variety. But if you put in and you do like a back backyard orcharding, uh philosophy, which was made very famous. I think Dave Murphy is the name. Uh, and That's not the right name. Somebody in chat will probably give it to me. Uh, but if you look up backyard orcharding, you'll find the, 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 the person that I'm talking about that has tons of varieties of grafted fruit trees that he's developed over time. Uh, I can't think of the last name of the guy now, but a fantastic approach. Then you're going to spread your harvest out so you're getting a little bit every week over a longer period of time. And you can do the same thing with things like your raspberries and your blackberries. Like if you're going to grow blackberries and you have room to grow like one little clump of blackberry, then pick something that works and grow it. But if you're going to grow a blackberry and you can have, you know, 20 little clumps or 10 or five little areas of blackberries, grow up really early, uh, early, uh, a mid A little late and a late variety, and they actually have those. Dave Wilson, that's – thank you, Mick. It was driving me crazy. I was about to start Googling in the middle of this, and that would be distracting. Dave Wilson's the gentleman that I'm talking about with the backyard orchard culture and all the different varieties of trees. I have some of his trees here on our property. But, you know, spread out the time – and pick different harvest times. And this would include if you have wild stuff you're going to forage, which we'll go into in the next episode that we do on this this series. So what I mean by that, let's say you, you have wild blackberry that grows in the bar ditches on the side of the road in your area, and you go out and you harvest that. There's probably about a two to three week window. And there's probably a peak week if if where you can do that. I remember when I lived in Pennsylvania, it was... The last week of June around us, it was a little bit on the on the third week and a little bit on the week of the 4th of July, and that was it. That's when you got blackberries. Florida, it was like the last two weeks of school, so that would have been the end of May because I remember walking to the bus stop and just eating freaking blackberries all the way. If I lived in a place where blackberries just grew around me, when I lived in Arkansas, for instance, they did, And I was going to cultivate blackberry as well because I really like blackberry for whatever reason. I would cultivate blackberry if I had enough room on both sides of that. If I could find a later variety, I would put it in. And if I could find an earlier variety, I'd put it in. And then I would have like a month and a half of being able to harvest blackberries. So whether I was doing it all on site or blending with harvestable wild forage, that's the approach I would take. If I wanted an extended harvest, if I want one big harvest, To preserve, then I'm going to do that. Same with tomatoes. If you want to, like, you're the kind of person you're going to can like 80 quarts of tomatoes and be done for the year, then you want to grow something like Roma, where you just cut the whole freaking strip of tomatoes off and do them all at once. If you want to grow tomatoes and harvest them through the season, you want, you know, a more typical indeterminate or cherry tomato or something like that that has an extended harvest. So you do, you do what you want. That's why I said maybe here. Grow what grows where you are. Grow what wants to grow. I said that already, but so many people are trying to emulate something like Sepp Holzer. Sepp Holzer grew a lemon tree in the middle of the Alps. God knows what amazing, exceptional measures were taken to keep that tree alive. I don't even, honest to God, know if it's still there. Maybe it is, right? And that's like the holy grail of permaculture, to emulate Sepp Holzer and grow a a lemon tree in the Alps. Go ahead if you want to. But I'll tell you what Seb Holzer grows. 95% of what he grows is not a publicity stunt. It's stuff that likes to grow where he's at. So if you really want to emulate Seb Holzer, grow what wants to grow. Use your local intelligence. Go talk to gardeners. If you drive around and you see some little old lady piddling in the backyard around the garden, and as long as it doesn't look like you're some kind of thug coming up on her or something, and she's coming out to check her mailbox, ma'am, I just noticed you have a garden. I just moved here. I've been living here a while. I've been struggling with my garden. What do you grow? She might say, get out of here. Nine times out of ten, probably more. That old lady's going to be like, oh, my God, somebody cares what I have to say. Or that old man's going to be like, oh, my God, somebody cares. I'll tell you what, you walked up on an old gardener where I grew up in Pennsylvania. You asked that question. You better just sit your ass down for a while because you're about to get a lesson. And that's what you're there for. And by cultivating those relationships and those friendships, if there's a garden club or something, go there. Yeah, sure, most of it's going to be commercial. Never be afraid to take advice from somebody doing things differently than you are. That's why you're there. And that includes you're taking advice from somebody that's spraying seven dust and fertilizer. You don't have to spray the seven dust and fertilizer, but if they tell you this particular variety of tomato does good where you are, bet your ass it does. Okay. When you talk to, like you talk to an old dude eating peaches out of a can on a knife. Take notes. Okay. Think that way. There's, there's, there's a wisdom in, in the, 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 the heart, the soul, and the mind of people who have done things for a long time, even if you might do some parts of it differently, specifically with varieties, when to plant, when not to plant, all that stuff. Harvest and bring in wild forage along with this approach. So I'm not talking about going out and just harvesting it to use it. That's the next episode. What I'm talking about is what I said earlier. I have lamb's quarter on my property that I harvested the seed from the wild and I brought it here. I have wild garlic on my property that I harvested the seed and I brought it here. I finally have broadleaf plantain, the plant that everybody can grow that I can't grow little places it's actually started to grow. I've been growing narrowleaf plantains since I got here, but that came from West Virginia, from a friend of mine named Roy, who sent me a gallon of freaking seed and I spread it everywhere. And it finally took off in a few places and I'm developing a land race of it. And I'm also developing my property where it's more fertile. So those are three examples of things that wouldn't be here that didn't come from a seed catalog that were brought in from offsite. In my place in Arkansas, I had apple mint that was wild apple mint that I just simply pulled out of the ground uh, up by my neighbor's place on the side of the road and planted in the uh, in in the land. I have um, echinacea growing here. I was drove driving down my road, so I knew it was local to here. I knew it was going to do good, and I saw this big clump of wild echinacea. And so I meant I made a mental mark on that. Drove by, kept an eye on it set a little reminder on my Outlook calendar. Cause I'm old and I use Outlook instead of Google calendar. And one day, you know, I'm like, it's all dormant and it was not frozen. The ground wasn't frozen. So I knew I could dig it up. And I went down there and dug it up on the side of the road and found the chromes, the, the roots. And I left some, I didn't take it all because it's an endangered wild plant at this point, but growing it here makes it less endangered, not more. I took about half the chromes, brought them here, Put them in pots, overwintered it, and now I have that plant on my property. So if you want wild edibles on your property from local harvest, that is a great strategy to take. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. And then feed yourself, but also think about like everybody's so much on this mindset of, I want to grow everything I grow, I want to be edible. Well, do you have animals? Grow things they eat. What about pollinators? What about predators? Or what about function? So you remember I talked about including things like fodder trees. So let's say you're growing hybrid willow for fodder as part of your strategy to feed a livestock element like rabbits, which all works on a small scale because we can grow willow. We can keep compassing it. We can keep it in a a manageable size. We can get a ton of fodder. We can feed that to our rabbits, but we can let that willow grow. And when you compass it, all those shoots are going to really straight. We can let it get about as big around as our thumb or maybe our index finger, depending on how big our hands are. And we can cut that and we can take the leaf matter and the thin stems as feed for the rabbits. And we can take, you know, pieces about, you know, yay long, a couple foot long. And we can cut it into a more manageable size, all about the same size. We can use that right away and we can make more plants with cuttings if we use intermittent mist with willow with poplar or with um i'm sorry willow and poplar both you just stick it and it'll grow mulberry we would have to do some intermittent mist work uh with uh, all but a few select varieties but the other thing we can do is we could take that willow and we can make ourselves a nice little kiln and we can make charcoal out of it and then we have nice straight pieces of charcoal you throw that in your kingsford grill. Or your Weber Kettle Grill? No. Why would you? No, that's artist charcoal. That That's artist charcoal. Now, if you live in an area with some local artists that do charcoal art, they might be interested in being able to tell their yuppie customers that they are producing their art with locally produced artisan charcoal instead of charcoal they're buying out of a catalog somewhere. That would be a way to create a monetary yield. And there's like... Hey, you want monetary yields? Do you know what a goji plant sells for in a catalog? If you're going to go get one now that I talked about it, you're going to find out it's about 20 bucks. What did I tell you you can do with goji plants? Snip, cut, stick, root. Two weeks you can be planted into the ground with protection. Sell them for five. Sweet potato, cuttings, root, slips, sell. I sell some every year. Easy peasy, stupid easy. Right. So think about how we can create yields in medicine, plants for our animals, plants for commercial. Perennials will start to reproduce themselves. You'll have to pull some out of the ground like they're weeds over time. And instead of throwing it away, either feed it to an animal or sell it to a neighbor or give it away. This is how we create this holistic approach with these four pillars of homesteading. And by the way, Remember how I said not all of them are for everybody? Well, if you want to form a strong community, maybe you have someone that's a really great gardener, but you ain't got time for that. But you keep some livestock and some perennials, and I bet you there's an opportunity there. Just saying. Remember that everyone used to live this way not so long ago. That's why I decided to do this um, series on the four pillars of homesteading. This is how I grew up. And it wasn't anything exceptional. It wasn't like I went to school. I made some friends. And because I had the hookup when I was a teenager for beer, which I did. They came over to drink in my cellar, which they did. And when they hung out, on my like, because I had the original 70 show foreman. Our basement just wasn't under the house. It was under the shanty. So it was even more separated from the from the adults. Right, But it wasn't like when they came over and we went up out of the cellar and everybody looked at the property like, wow, dude, you have a garden and you have chickens and you have all this cool shit and you guys put your deer down there where we drink. That was like, so, so, so what? Like if you would have went and bragged about that, everyone like, listen to this guy, where are you from? New York City? Everybody lives that way here. And if you go back because I'm old but I ain't that old right you go back to a generation before mine you go back to when my granddad was in his thirties right after the war right you go back to then and this was common everywhere except in the city proper everybody had a garden everybody had a few birds or if you didn't you knew somebody that did this is this is what I want to get through to people and it's what I've been trying to get through to people so hard for almost 15 years now. This is an innately human way to live. This is a lot more human way to live than I get in a tube every day in a metal thing called a train and go into the city and then I eat my lunch at a delicatessen and then I'm surrounded by people that I hate and I come back and I put a TV dinner in the microwave. Right? I mean, if this is so much more innately human, we are horticultural species. We are animal husbandry oriented as a species. I believe that. There's a reason that we naturally orientate ourselves toward vegetation and animals. There's some people that hate both. I don't know what's wrong with them. Maybe there's a wire cross. Maybe it's their upbringing. But overall, in general, people like animals. They like to look at animals, like to see animals, like to care for animals. There's a multi cabillion dollar pet industry for a reason. And you take a person that's never farmed or grown a day in their life and show them shitty soil, dirt, and they go, "Uh." they can tell it's not, there's nothing special. And you show them gorgeous garden soil that's been built with fertility over time. They have no idea why, but they know that that is good. When you smell dirt, good, fertile soil, it smells good. You see it. You know what I'm talking about. You pull mulch back and it's good soil. You're like, oh, there it is. Right. You know, dark is good and really light and shitty is bad. You know that. Why do you think you know that? Because it's hardwired into you as a human. Whether it was that way from the time we first emerged or were created, however you believe it. I don't know. Or whether it's because of a couple hundred thousand years of our existence and what we were taught and handed down in ancestral memory. Well, I don't care why, but it's there. It's who and what we are. And that's why next week we're going to go into the final piece of it, really walking in the footsteps of our ancestors, who, sure, they figured out I can pull that bush out of the ground there and plant it here where I can look after it, And I'll get the berries instead of the animal. And sure, they figured out how to do small scale farming and things like that. They figured out how to cultivate the woods using fire as a primary tool to make clearings and creating regrowth and harvest. To the point where when 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 European settlers came to North America, almost the entire continent was under cultivation, though it all looked like wilderness. They didn't know what they were looking at. But that was because they blended the two worlds. Why would I have livestock when even with a primitive weapon like a bow or an atlatl, I can go get a deer anytime I want? Why would I go through that? So what we're going to talk about next is blending these worlds where we start thinking about foraging, hunting and fishing and foraging locally, but also foraging within our own communities. Finding that person who's really good at the thing you're not or has the time to do the thing that you're not and saying, hey, you raise rabbits. Would you be interested in selling some rabbits? Well, I don't really grow enough rabbits. Could you? Would you be interested? What if I paid you X per rabbit? What if I paid for my rabbits in advance every season so that you could afford whatever you need to do to expand? What if we had two or three people like me? Would you be interested in being the rabbit co-op guy? for the neighborhood. There's a lot of opportunity in this. And again, that is all part of how we used to live. What was normal, what was considered, what was considered normal. In fact, I have to tell you as much as I remember of this mindset, I don't know a single family that I grew up around that did it all. That did it all a hundred percent. Anyway, that didn't rely on somebody else for some part of it whether it was me taking those grapes from my grandfather's vines up to Buddy Shoemaker to have wine made out of them, or whether it was my Uncle Pete who had huge rows of raspberries but didn't have it in him to pick it anymore that had people come over and pick and take whatever they want as long as they left some for him. And they always left him more than he needed. There was always something in that. My Uncle Pete, who raised pigeons for shooting, We used to actually have actual live pigeon shoots like sporting clays with a live bird, but man, all the coals, all the birds killed in shoots. Don't think they were thrown away. I used to trap when I was in high school. One of my sources of money is I trapped raccoon and Fox and muskrat. Most of that got used as meat as well. It wasn't just the fur base, like, but everybody did different pieces and parts, whether it was larger families where they kind of did everything on the family land, but everybody had a role or people that just they had a garden, or they had some berry bushes, or they were hunters and fishermen, but they all worked together. We have some real shit heading our way, guys. We really do. We have a government hell bent on the domestication of the human species. We domesticate plants and animals. That's fine, in my opinion. That's part of what we don't need to be domesticating each other. You know when they tell you your child needs to go to government school because teaching is a science? Why? Okay, teaching is innately human as well. But they, what's the big word they all give you? What do they give you? Socialization. Your child needs socialization with others. They don't give a flying rip that Tammy and Susie talk to each other and form solid relationships. That's why when Sammy and Tammy and Susie talk in school, they always tell them to shut up. They're not worried about socialization. Do you know what that word means when they say it? Domestication. Domestication. They want your kids in school so your children can be properly domesticated, meaning that they listen to and obey what the state says. And if you've paid attention for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years and seen the progression that the state's taken, I don't want nothing to do with it, and my kids don't want nothing to do with it. I don't want anybody from that system having shit to do with domesticating my grandchild. My granddaughter or my grandson, they don't need to be domesticated. We can handle all the socialization, put them in all kinds of activities. They can have all kinds of contemporaries their own age, plus older, so they strive to move up. But we're not teaching freaking blind obedience here. And a big part of that is if you're not going to be domesticated, and you don't want to be truly, completely wild, caveman hair down, swinging through the trees like Tarzan. There is a middle. And it's the natural state of the human being. We call it being feral. We are a feral species in that we commune with each other, but we are still attached to the planet if we're living in a natural state. That's what this four pillars series is all about. Hope that makes sense. With that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did, remember one of the ways you can always support us is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And if you're sitting here going, hey, it's getting really close to Christmas. And I ain't I ain't done all of my shopping yet. And I'm down to the uh to the last hoorah so to speak. And I don't know what to get for the preppers or normies in my life. Santa Val has you covered. Now, if you're in the video, you're seeing Santa Val. If you don't know who Santa Val is, Val, of course, is the Survival Podcast logo. Been around since 2008. It's got the earpiece over the head and the visor and all that. Santa Val's just Val with a Santa hat. But what I did is I put together 14 of my best-selling items out of the t catalog for you. They're all listed here, a little summary of them, link where you can get over and learn more about them. And I've included things like packages, like if you're going to get the fermentation kit, here's a book that would go along with it. If you're going to get the French press, there's a grinder that might go along with it. If you're going to get the pellet tube smoker, there's some pellets that you might provide to your loved ones or your friends and family. And I'm telling you, there's something here for everybody, prepper, and me alike, like, and if you help me out by shopping at tspaz.com, whenever you shop online, I'd appreciate it. I've been talking about the Redneck, redneck Hippie Duck Farmer shirts, too, at tspswag.com. Guys, I just got my shipping notice. I'm going to tell you this. The people that I partnered with to make this website for you, tspswag.com, I guarantee you if I said, look, I want five shirts, I want this one, this one, this one, and this one for free, they would send them to me. I'm sure they would. I buy from my own store uh, just to make sure everything's always working right and watch the whole process go through. So I just got my confirmation that these are shipping today. And I've shown you the Redneck Hippie uh, Duck Farmer shirts with the the large design on the front. This is the one with a small design over the pocket in the front. Uh, And then, of course, it does have the the more conventional design uh, here on the back. And and you can always uh, help support us by shopping at TSPSwag.com as well. And uh, with that, I'll wrap things up. Tomorrow we will have a proper expert council Q&A because everything's back on the attack like it needs to be. And uh, so that's all, that's all ready to go next week. I don't think there'll be any new episodes next week. I haven't completely decided yet, but some portion of next week will be rewinds at least maybe the whole week. And then the week, the Christmas week between Christmas and new year's, Whatever days of those are working days will also be rewinds. This might be the last live stream new episode uh, that there is. Tomorrow will be a new episode. That will probably be the last uh, new episode for the season. We'll go into New Year 2023 coming back. As always, every year I shut down for about two weeks around the holiday. And it is a very important time to me, and I always implore you guys to do it as well. Now, I will say what well, we will have next week, guaranteed, we do it every year, the Survival Podcast Christmas Special, where I will tell you the real story of Christmas, where so many of our traditions actually come from, Jeffrey Crayon Ghent. That might be an interesting thing to look up if you haven't heard the story before, or you can just wait. Uh, We will tell that story and we'll also be telling you in that story. It's kind of the, if you heard the Thanksgiving special, it's a continuation. It's a story of how the holidays that we call Thanksgiving and Christmas spread through America and how they weren't really that prominent in the whole country. One was prominent in what we call the northern states of the time and one in the southern states of the time. And the role that they played in National Reconciliation after the Civil War and how they became so ingrained in American tradition. It's pretty cool. So I'll be telling you that story next week, probably with a bunch of rewinds mixed in. If I don't see you live again, until then, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, and whatever else you want to come up with. then Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Are they